0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: We learn to appreciate other cultures by learning about them. How? To my mind, the most important thing that we can do is read or engage with the great works of the different cultures. So, in our schools, a great books course—or rather, great books courses—should be mandatory in our system of education. So, how is it that you know? I went through school in Israel, South Africa, and then I studied in uh, in, in, in the U.S., in the U.K., and it was only later on, when I actually moved there, that I encountered uh, Confucianism and Taoism. You know, how is it that only in graduate school I came uh, across uh, Chinua Akebe's book? things fall apart? Why are so many people have not read Greek uh, mythology or the Bible? You know, whether you're religious or not, or the Bhagavad Gita, you know, why aren't these mandatory readings in every culture around the world, in every school? Because when we learn the great books, then we gain an understanding of the DNA of a culture.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying uh, before we hit record here, I have known about your work for a very, very long time. Many of your former protégés have actually been our own podcast guests. And in many ways, you're kind of like the godfather of this whole happiness movement (laughs) to me. Uh, But before we get into your work, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew
1: up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and career? Yes. So uh, I grew up the first nine years of my life. I grew up in Israel and uh, in a small uh, uh, city outside of Tel Aviv, Ramat Gan. And uh, at the age of nine, we moved to South Africa. Um, And I spent five years there till the age of 14 and then back to to Israel where I uh, finished uh, my high school and then um, went off to London to play uh, on the professional squash circuit. And uh, ever since then, I've been moving around. So I've lived in uh, a number of countries, including uh, in, in Europe, Holland, uh, the UK. Had another stint there later on. Spent a few years in Singapore, and of course uh, in the US.
2: Yeah, how did each one of these places uh, influence you know where you've ended up and your own sort of? Uh, Perception on, on this whole idea of happiness, but more importantly, how in the world did you escape the military service?
1: Uh, so I, I thought it was mandatory. Escape, I did not okay. escape the military service. Uh, it's it's very difficult to do in Israel. You yeah, know, a mandatory service for three years. So um, uh, I did. I graduated from high school um, early, and then had a few years uh, playing on the professional circuit, and uh, after that had to go back to the army when I was. Uh, well, almost 19, and spent three years in the army before coming to the U.S. for college.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, each one of these things, there's such a diversity of experiences, um, you know, all these different countries. Uh, I had to ask about the military experience because I'm always so curious about people who've served in the, the Israeli military. Uh, what, what do you, What do you think people have as misperceptions about that? What are the benefits that came from it? How did that end up impacting your life later on? Like, what are the
1: valuable lessons that came from it? I think the most important lesson was um, uh, learning to appreciate uh, things, more learning to appreciate life in general. But, you know, I remember, uh, you know, uh, arriving at Harvard for my undergrad and going into the dining hall with my new roommates and new friends, and I just couldn't believe the fact that they were complaining about the food. Because compared to army food, you know, I was I felt like I was in a five-star hotel. So uh, you know, it's learning to appreciate the um the the small things in life and not taking for granted uh, what what we do have. Um having having said that, you know, if you'd asked me even today, would you have volunteered for those three years? I I would not have. Uh, but, you know, you have to do it. And, you know, one one of the ideas that I talk about a lot in, in my classes, in, in my teaching in organizations is um, the idea that things don't always uh, happen for the best, but we have the choice to make the best of things that happen. And this wasn't uh, an explicit mantra, you know, 30 years ago when I was in the military, but it, um It certainly is one today. So even though I would not have volunteered and I don't think, oh, it's for the best that people go into the army, you know, my my dad told me that, or rather my grandfather told me that when my dad was born, uh, he said, I hope that my son will will not have to fight going to the military like I did. You know, my dad was born in uh, 1943. Um, And my dad said the same thing. And, uh, when I was born and I said the same thing when, when David, our eldest uh, son was born 16 years ago, uh, but you know, it is what it is and it's, it's mandatory and and we do it. And the question is, how can you make the best of it? Even if it is Uh, not for the best.
2: Yeah. So you, you've been in all these different places. Um, so, so two questions from that, how did each culture, uh, impact you, you know, what lessons did you learn from each one? And I I always wonder this about immigrants because, I, you know, teaching at Harvard, I'm sure you probably have plenty of students who are Indian because, you know, it's practically in our DNA to basically be overachievers uh, because it's just what our parents instill in us. So I wonder, are Israeli parents the same way Indian parents are in terms of the way they encourage their kids uh, with career
0: paths?
1: Um, So there are similarities uh, between, um, you know, the the Jewish culture and the Indian culture or... um, um, in, in terms of emphasis on education. So education was always a priority. However, um, my parents uh, never put any any pressure on me. At least it was, was never explicit. Um, but, um, you know, it was always, uh, you know, pursue your passions. And once I did identify passions that were very supportive. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing and you know this is uh, especially uh, uh, thanks to my, my dad who's uh, a walking encyclopedia. It was always, um, you know, we always uh, heard stories and there was always information, and there was always learning. And I think my parents more than anything uh, led by example. So my, my mom is a microbiologist, my dad is uh, a walking encyclopedia and an engineer, and um, they were always learning. And um, by the way, they're, they're learning today. So my mom is uh, in her 70s and she's uh, still taking courses in biology, on nutrition now. Um, my, my dad as well is learning, uh, he's learning Spanish now. He's uh, just turned uh, 77. So I think they led by example and, and learning was, and I think for many Jewish families, is a central uh, key value. Yeah.
2: And as far as the culture of each one of these places, how did each one um, shape and influence your worldview uh, about you know what's important, what matters, and even career choices?
1: So each place uh, affected me. You know, let, let me start with the sum total, and then I'll go um, into the, you know the, the the individual places. But the sum total taught me that uh, a human being is a human being is a human being, meaning many people ask about how or in what way happiness is cultural. And um, the answer, the the best answer to that actually comes from a story that I read about. It's written about uh, in uh, Daniel Goleman's book, Destructive Emotions, where he describes a meeting um, between uh, Western scientists and Eastern scientists and practitioners. And uh, the Dalai Lama was there, his right hand uh, men were there as well as some of the leading researchers in the world from the U.S., from the U.K., from Spain, France, um, from Latin America, were there to talk about uh, happiness and and dealing with destructive emotions. And it was a five-day event, actually, which was uh, held in in the uh, north of India. And uh, around the third day, the Dalai Lama, after hearing dozens and dozens of uh, uh, speeches, presentations by both Eastern and Western scientists and practitioners, uh, the Dalai Lama, you know, raised his hand in his uh, humble way and said, may I say something? And, and no one dared say no, of course. And, um, and he said, look, you know, we've been here for you know, three days almost, and we've heard so many lectures on cultural differences. And um, you know they're great. The research is is really interesting. However, I'm concerned, and my concern is that we're focusing uh, too much on the differences and not enough on the similarities. Now, I think probably the last thing you can say about the Dalai Lama is that he is not uh, culturally sensitive. You know, <laughs> uh, at the same time, he also understands that a human being is a human being is a human being, and our similarities. We, we shouldn't lose sight of our similarities. You know, so for instance, whether you live in, um, you know, in, 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 in Mumbai, in New York, in London, or in Nairobi, uh, relationships are important to you. They're the number one predictor of happiness. Whether you live in any of these places or any other place, um, finding a sense of meaning. In life is important. Physical exercise, movement is important. And so these are the similarities that are important everywhere. And then there are cultural differences. You know, there are cultures that are more individualistic, and there are cultures that are more collective. And cultures where uh, um, um, success is, is more emphasized, or, or you know, where uh, sticking out is more important versus uh, being the same. So yeah, of course, these are important differences that we need to study, um, while keeping in mind. That we should not lose sight of the similarities and the universals. And Mm -hmm. in a sense, when we, when we study happiness, we, we need to look at it. uh, We need to study it on three levels. The first level is, um, the universal. Um, and, and we do research for that. The second level is cultural and we need to do research for that. The second level, the third level is personal. And for that, rather than research, we need to engage in me-search, because there are many important individual differences as well. But that doesn't negate the fact that we needn't study culture as well as the universal. So, yeah. so th- this is what I, I think implicitly, without you know, thinking about it or, or, or even noticing it consciously, um, I learned that, you know, whether I was in in South Africa, whether I was in uh, in Israel, Singapore, uh, U.S., or or, or or in Holland, um, the needs, the human needs, were uh, were very very similar. Now, from each country uh, wh- where I lived, I. I derived different lessons, and you know, let me just give you a couple of examples, because there, there are too many of them to, to list, but just a couple of examples. So in South Africa, um, I did experience uh, a lot of anti-Semitism. You know we, we lived in a, in, in a small town. It was a very small town. and, um, and, and, and I did experience um, a lot of anti-Semitism from, uh, in school. I got into many fights being called uh, a bloody Jew, you know, regularly. Um, and um, needless to say, that wasn't, uh, wasn't fun. But, you know, as, as Nietzsche said, if he doesn't kill you, which he didn't, uh, it makes you stronger. So I do feel I became stronger and also more, um, more sensitive to discrimination in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having, having experienced it, uh, uh, firsthand and having observed it from up close because uh, we were there during the apartheid era. And, yeah. uh, later on when I no longer lived in, uh, in South Africa, I had the privilege of working with, uh, um, with, uh, black children, creating a program or programs around, uh, positive psychology, helping raise, uh, self-esteem, both for children as well as for adults. Some of these programs are uh, sponsored directly by Nelson Mandela, uh, whom I, I had the privilege of meeting. Um, so I remained involved with uh, South Africa and, and still am, still do work there, uh, long after I left. So, and, and, and I did it because it was the right thing to do, but also because I felt a strong, deep connection. You know, so, um, you know, five of my most formative years were, were spent there. And yes, I did experience uh, uh, discrimination, but, uh, and I also experienced many wonderful, um, um, memorable moments there. So that's, that's South Africa. Then, um, you know, Israel. You know, Israel is, is an interesting case study when it comes to happiness because um, on paper, Israelis should not be happy. <laughs> uh, you know, Israel is, um, is a country that has its fair share of problems, whether, you know, first and foremost, uh, political uh, problems, um, you know, a country at war. My first memory, so my first childhood memory is of war. Um, I have a, a flashball memory of the Yom Kippur War, which was uh, in uh, 1973. And uh, the siren going off and me running down with, uh, you know, with my family to, to the shelter. I remember it as, as if it happened yesterday. You know, that's 47 years ago. Um, so, and yet, and yet, despite these experiences, Israelis are among the happiest people in the world. And the question is why? And the answer is actually quite straightforward and simple. When you look at all the countries that are at the top, of the, uh, of the international rankings. Countries like Israel, like Colombia, like uh, Costa Rica, like uh, Denmark. Um, uh, and when you look at these countries, the common element is um, relationships. So, yeah, there are certain conditions that have to be put in place. You know, these uh, the the very poor countries where people don't have their base or where most people don't have their basic needs, they will not be among the happiest countries in the world for sure. Or countries that are um, ruled by uh, dictators or where um, certain uh, where where women are oppressed. Now, these countries will not be uh, happy. But uh, once basic needs are met, relationships matter most. Take Denmark, for example. In Denmark, 93% of the population are members of social clubs, active members of social clubs. You know, that's the highest uh, rate in the world. Um, it's no coincidence that they're among the happiest countries in the world. Um, in Colombia and Israel, you know, family is, is, is central. Uh, friendships are central. This is why, despite the respective challenges uh, they're among the happiest countries in the world, and that's what I learned more than anything else in Israel: um, yeah. to invest in, to value, to prioritize relationships, whether it's with family, of course, uh, as well as with friends.
2: Yeah, yeah it's funny you say that because, like, I I remember my my sister got married about two years ago, and I you know I was going through particularly difficult periods right around 2018. And you know, we went to India as a family together for the first time in 25 years. And I'd looked at those two or three months, you know, leading up to the wedding. And I, I noticed, I was like, wow, this is the happiest I've been in a really long mm-hmm. time. And I realized it was because I was spending so much time with my family. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Again, it, so, you know, it, it sounds oh, so simple. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yet, uh, and yet, in our modern world... Um, relationships for many people uh, has been taking a backseat.
2: So I, I want to ask you two questions uh, about sort of Western culture. First, the, dis- the discrimination piece. You know, I've had two other guests from South Africa here, Srini and his wife, Uma Naidu, who both also were there during apartheid. And as somebody who has been in a country like South Africa during apartheid, when you see the divisiveness that is happening today in the United States, how do you react to that? Like, what do you, does somebody like you think, like, are you scared that we're about to have history repeat itself?
1: Um, you know, I don't know if, um, you know, I think it was Mark Twain who said that history rarely repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Um, so I, I don't think history will, I hope, history won't repeat itself. However, we are certainly seeing uh, divisiveness. And, and that is connected to, you know, what, what I started off with, saying that, we need to recognize and understand that we're much more similar than we're different. Um, And I I feel like there is too much emphasis on cultural differences, uh, too much difference on um, ethnic differences. And again, not to belittle those, it's important to research, research them, to study them. Um, um, However, we need to, um, First and foremost, recognize our humanity. Now, how do we recognize our humanity? Um, th- this may be it may seem like we're going off on, uh, on on a tangent, but but it's very much related. We learn about or and we learn to appreciate other cultures by learning about them. How, to my mind, the most important thing that we can do is read or engage with the great works of the different cultures. So, in our schools, I think it should um, uh, a great books course, or rather, great books courses, should be mandatory in our system of education. So, how is it that you know? I went through school in uh, in all in Israel, South Africa, and then I studied in uh, in, in in the US, in the UK, and uh, it was only later on when I actually moved there that I encu- that I encountered uh, Confucianism and Taoism you know how is it that only in graduate school i came uh, across uh, chinua akebe's book uh, things fall apart you know why why um why is it why are so many people have not read uh, greek uh, mythology iliad and, and odyssey or, or the bible you know whether you're mm-hmm. religious or not or the bhagavad gita you know why um aren't these mandatory readings in every uh, in every Culture around the world in every school, because when we learn the um, um, the great books, then we um, gain an understanding of the DNA of a culture. You know, you understand Israel better if you read the Bible. You understand uh, modern Israel. That is, you understand um, modern India better if you read the you know the Gita, and especially if you read uh, Gandhi's. Um, um, exegesis of the uh, of the gitas. So we need to, um, um, and, and same with Confucianism. You know, I spend a lot of time in Singapore, a lot of time in China. Um, do I understand that culture? You know, n- not in depth, but thanks to reading and rereading uh, Confucian, Confucius and uh, Mencius and uh, Lao Tzu, I understand it uh, understand it a lot better. And um, and I think that we can have a lot more empathy through understanding towards different cultures. In other words, we'd be brought together more if we have more of a common language. And, uh, and right now, uh, certainly in the U.S., the culture is we're speaking at each other rather than um, sharing things together.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: yeah i mean that makes a perfect segue to talking uh, specifically about education but w- where i want to start is how in the world do you end up at a place like harvard uh which is basically the breeding ground for future goldman sachs employees and lawyers and end up choosing happiness as the subject that you're going to study, because, you know, like most of my guests, happiness research is not something a high school guidance counselor says, yeah, this is what you should go and do.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, I ended up at Harvard, uh, thanks to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want me to explain? Or should yes, you just, please. Oh, absolutely. Okay, it's not self-explanatory. No. All right. So, so here is why. Um, so I served in the military in Israel between 89 and 92. And for at least the 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 beginning of uh, the military they um provided for uh, some concessions for me because I was uh, I was an athlete. So I was able to you know I went to the military every day but it was next to a squash court so I could play almost every day and once in a while I went um traveled to to Europe uh, to play tournaments. Um so um, I basically maintained my my level of, uh, of of squash, planning that as soon as I graduate, uh, well, complete my military service at the age of uh, twenty one, the next day I'll be uh, off to to England, to London, which is you know, considered the mecca of squash, and um, and and play, uh, return to my professional career, uh, but then uh, um, I think it was the. F- August 1990, I believe, um, Saddam invaded Kuwait. And as soon as he invaded Kuwait, the minute he invaded Kuwait, the Israeli military went on uh, the highest alert. And at that moment, all privileges were revoked. And for the next, um, I think it was until the 15th of February, which is when the uh, uh, first uh, Iraq war was over, until then, I was uh, basically. In in the military, full time, uh, no squash, no practice, uh, nothing. I, I you know was extremely busy, um, and then I returned to to squash again, and then I got injured again and again and again, and uh, an injury that ended up uh, ending my career, uh, my my professional squash career, uh, because uh, what happened during the time when I didn't play squash the uh, the muscles in my back uh, got very weak and my joint went out of alignment and the alignment was held as long as my muscles were tight but when they when they weakened when they became lax then um my my joints literally moved and that 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 was a career ending injury um and then i remembered that uh, i met uh, the Harvard squash coach a few years earlier. And he said, look, we'd love to, uh, you know, we have a, a squash team here. We'd love to, uh, to recruit you uh, so that you can come to Harvard. And I said to him, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'm going uh, to play professional. But given that I couldn't play professional, I mean, I could still play, but not at the highest levels." Uh, I called him up and I said, is the offer still on the table? You know, gave him the whole, the whole spiel. And he said, uh, it sure is. And that's how I ended up at Harvard. You know i got injured thanks to Saddam Hussein which changed the trajectory <laughs> of, of my career yeah yeah um so yeah so so um i so i got to, into Harvard. i started off there as a computer science major uh you know both my parents you know as engineer microbiologist i was always uh, into the sciences uh, i uh, computer- um, i was very interested in computer science. That's what I started to major in. And then um, my second year, so this was uh, first semester of my sophomore year, I suddenly, you know, caught myself and I, and, and I said to myself, how is it that I'm in such a, you know, a wonderful place with wonderful students, wonderful faculty, great food in the dining hall, um, and uh, miserable. And it didn't make sense to me because, you know, I looked at my life from the outside. Things were great. I was doing very well academically. You know, in squash, I was, I was you know, do, doing well there. I had, I had friends. Ostensibly, I, sh- I should have been, you know, the, the happiest person. And I was far from it. And it dawned on me. And this was my you know, first, uh, I guess, insight about the field of happiness, which, again, today seems trivial, but it wasn't at the time that uh, happiness depends much more on the inside than on the outside. And uh, it was in a day, I just decided to basically change course. And I went to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm changing majors. And she said, what to? And I said, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, I have two questions. First question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I, I did my undergrad and then um, went over to the other Cambridge in England to uh, read education and then back to Harvard for my PhD, all the time focusing on uh, how can I my, help myself, individuals, families, uh, organizations, and ultimately nations increase levels of well-being. And, uh, wow. you know, I haven't looked back since That's what, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been passionate about.
2: So, you know, like I I contrast that to my own undergraduate experience at Berkeley, which, you know, I look back now and think, what a waste, because I didn't leverage the opportunities that were at my disposal. But, but what I wonder is, why is it that you are self-aware enough at that age to question whether you are on the right path? Because I don't think a lot of people do. I think that for the most part, we choose from the options in front of us. Uh, and we're largely blind to the possibilities that surround us, and, and I think that's common for a lot of people. Like I, ne- nobody ever taught me to see college as an opportunity for exploration and discovery, and I that to me was one of the reasons I feel I missed out on so much at a place that should have been rich with
1: opportunity. I think I think part of it is definitely the age. Remember, I started you know at the age of uh, almost twenty two. I was a 22-year-old right. 22, 22 freshman. So that may, makes a difference. You know, I had experiences before. You know, I was in the military. Um, I did live, uh, you know, abroad playing, playing squash. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is experiences. Some of it is um, a re, a, as a result of a blessing and a curse. And the blessing and the curse is that, um, you, know, you know, I do, um, I do tend towards uh, introspection. The, the curse of it is that it also means rumination, and, and that is not always a prescription for happiness. You know, uh, uh, Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, but I'd like to add to that, that the over-examined life is tedious. Um, <laughs> so I certainly uh, have often, and, and still do, fall too much into the over-examination. Um, yeah. But at that stage in my life, that, that um, really helped. Because I did need to reflect, and one of the things that not enough students in college or pre-college do is reflect. So they come in, and you know they they, they get into a good college, and they know the path that will get them into a top, you know, investment banking job or or consulting job, or uh, you know the or, or the or the medical school or the law school, um, or education. It doesn't matter, but they don't think they don't reflect on uh and what it is that they want to do. You know, when I... Um, so I was, you know, very fortunate that my parents always encouraged us to, to reflect. And I was also fortunate to have uh, good teachers. You know, one of my teachers, uh, the Israeli philosopher, Ohad Kamin, uh, I consulted with him when I graduated from college because I didn't know which path I wanted to take. You know, did I, did I want to go into, into business? At that time, you know, I had a you know a great offer um, to to work in the business as an organizational behaviorist. So it's to 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 uh, include my love for psychology uh, as well as do something in uh, in the world. So I had you know a nice offer there. Um, I was thinking of graduate school, maybe becoming a, an academic. I was already starting to teach then, so maybe to go into teaching. You know, so I really w- was uh, was considering different paths. And, and I went to him and asked for advice and he, and he gave me the following advice. And he said, Tal, go home and journal. In your journal, write about, make a list of uh, all the things that you can do, that you can do well. Um, and then um, out of those things, identify the things that you want to do. And out of those things, find the things that you really want to do. And then find the things that you really, really want to do and then go out and do them. And um, in other words, what he did was help me create concentric circles. And again, whether the outer circle had, you know, 20 things or five things, it doesn't matter. But the, the, the idea here is to hone in on those things that where your strengths are, that you can do uh, well or relatively well, and the things that you really, really want to do that you're passionate about. And, um... And, and this was very good advice. And I, and I actually did this, this, uh, not just then also when I, when I graduated from, uh, fr- from, uh, um, graduate school, I did, uh, uh, something similar because I also didn't know, do I want to remain in academia? What kind of academia? W- where do I want to be? And, and, and this uh, exercise has been very helpful for me. So a lot of it is about a reflection. There is not Enough of it, certainly not when people go to college and when, um, uh, even when they're in their workplace. And sometimes when there is reflection and they realize, well, I should maybe be elsewhere, they're thinking, oh, but I've spent so many years already doing this. Or, you know, I've already invested in my computer science uh, uh, prerequisites or my econ prerequisites. I'm not going to move now to philosophy Uh, or vice versa. You know, people, my students, whether it's at Harvard or uh, my students in the Happiness Studies Academy, today, they're, um, um, they very often tell me that the best thing that they got out of the course that they get out of the course is that they identify what are the things that they really, really want to do and then go out and do them. And for some, it may be teaching for some, it may be investment banking. It doesn't matter, but it's, it's finding those things that you're passionate about.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talk about education in particular. I knew there was no way I was going to get out of a conversation with you without asking you about education because I figure anybody who's an educator—my dad's a college professor—so we have all these, you know, ongoing arguments, disagreements, and and you know, questions about education. But one of the things that you say in the book is ensuring that the process of learning is itself enjoyable is in part the responsibility of each student, especially in the college and graduate school where they have more independence. Yet, by the time students are mature enough to take Responsibility for their education. Most have already internalized the Rat racers ethos, and we'll get into the archetypes that you talk about in just a second. Um, but you're at Harvard, and Harvard, in so many ways, is the epitome of a person who is in in the Rat racers ethos. I mean, the college admissions scandal is another you know sort of byproduct of that. So when you look at education in its modern form, outside of talking about you know reading the great books, like how do you change this Rat racer's ethos, particularly in education? Um, particularly where you have, you know, helicopter parents, But I grew up in an Indian family, we were the kinds of people who nobody put our report cards on refrigerators when we got A's. It was like, you, you got anything less. It was like, what happened? What did you do wrong? Mm.
1: Yeah. So, um, f- first of all, it's very challenging because, um, the, the focus on, uh, achievement on quantifiable achievement, like grades, like, uh, like success, like money, wealth, accolades, uh, the focus is so deeply rooted that it's it's difficult to to, to get it out you know marty seligman who's considered the f- father of the positive psychology movement uh, often addresses often addresses parents and uh, and teachers and he always begins with two questions and the first question is okay help me i want to create a list on the board um what would you most want for your children and all parents uh, around the world, again, this is universal, would say similar things. You know, we want them to be happy, would probably be the first one. Uh, we want them to be resilient. We want them to have good relationships. Um, we want them to to, to to love what they do. You know, we want them to lead a full and fulfilling life. So he makes that list on one side of the board. And then he says, okay, this is question number one. Let's move on over to question number two. What do children learn in school? And he makes a list on the board and they learn, you know, the three R's uh, and, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, they learn uh, geography and history and, uh, and biology and the list goes on. There's almost no overlap between <laughs> list number one and list number two. And the question wow. is, why don't children learn um, how to become happier, how to cultivate healthy relationships? You know, I would have understood that it wasn't in schools, maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but today we have a science of happiness. We know how to increase levels of well being. We know how to cultivate resilience in children. Why isn't that taught in schools? And that is no less important than teaching uh, mathematics or computer science or history. Now, I'm not belittling the importance of studying mathematics, history, and computer science. These are very important and gaining skills for. Our livelihood are certainly, uh, you know, certainly important. However, why either or? Especially given the fact that if we cultivate happiness, if we learn, if we teach people how to enjoy healthier relationships, um, better physical health, nutrition, they will also perform better uh, as students, as employees in the workplace, uh, as parents, as partners. So these are um, very important skills that are not. Taught in schools. I would introduce them from um, from the outset, starting in uh, in um, well kindergarten or as early as children receive education. The form of education that does come uh, close to it in the form of education that I um, subscribe to is uh, Montessori. I think Montessori uh, Maria Montessori was a genius. I think she had most of it right, and um, where where she was able to combine between a real deep learning as well as a cultivation of human skills. Uh-huh.
2: So I had to ask you, I mean, you, know, you mentioned parents, and you're a parent, as you mentioned earlier. And anytime I, I talk to a psychologist who happens to have the kind of background that you do, I'm always curious, are you immune to all the bullshit that most parents have to deal with when they have kids because you happen to have this knowledge base?
1: <laughs> you know, so... Um, so our eldest son, David, was born uh, 16 years ago. When he was uh, six, I went to one of my closest friends, uh, Shirley Yuval. She's a child psychologist. She's my go-to person whenever I have questions. And uh, you know, I, I went to her and I said, Shirley, you know, I wish I knew six years ago what I, what I know today, because uh, then I would have made, um, I wouldn't have made all those mistakes. And she said to me, Tal, don't worry. You would have made other mistakes. (laughs) Um, And and, and there's an important message here um, because, uh, yeah, you know, we do make mistakes uh, as parents. We're not perfect parents. And it's a good thing that we're not perfect parents. So in the 1950s and 60s, in England, a psychologist by the name of Donald Winnicott wrote about the good enough mother. The good enough mother, and, and he wrote about the mother because then fathers were hardly uh, involved in child rearing. But you know, it, it applies to fathers who are involved as much. And his idea there was that what children need are not perfect parents. What they need are good enough parents. And then he said, which means stop worrying. You know, do your best. Of course, of course, love your kid. Of course, you know. I'm not talking about uh, extreme cases. Uh, you know, uh, of abusive parenting, but, you know, love your kids um, and and beyond that, do your best and, you know, continue to learn, to grow. Your children don't need a perfect machine. They need a, a good enough person, a real role model, in other words. Because take, for example, let's say a parent was so attentive to their child, perfectly attentive to their child. Well, their child wouldn't learn how to deal with inattentiveness, or wouldn't have learned how to deal with, uh, with difficulties and hardships. You know, Maria Montessori said, don't do for a child what a child can do for him or herself, um, which means letting them struggle, letting them deal with difficulties. And part of the struggles come from the imperfection of the parent at one level or, or another. You know, as, as I grow older, I, I become more and more grateful. I've always been grateful to my parents, but I become even more grateful because um, you know, I realize that you know, they, they really did their best. And moreover, even the mistakes that they made are mistakes that ultimately I have benefited from. Um, also, I guess I'm giving them more, um, you know, more, more leeway as, as an indirect way of giving myself more leeway because I see the mistakes that uh, you know that I made and and, and will make, no doubt. So okay. the, the the answer to your question, I'm very grateful to uh, to the field of positive psychology, the science of happiness. I've learned a lot. Many of the things that I apply, and I see that my kids are benefiting from it. Uh, and yet, more important than anything else is that my kids um, encounter a real role model. Uh, and that I that I am hopefully a good enough father to them. Wow. Well, let's uh,
2: let's get into the archetypes that you talk about. You talk about th- uh, you several archetypes in here: the rat race archetype, the hedonist archetype, the nihilism archetype, and the happiness archetype. And, uh, you know, the rat race one caught me in particular, because I feel like to some degree, everybody is caught up in the rat race archetype. You say, you know, we're not rewarded for enjoying the journey itself, but for the successful completion of a journey, society rewards results, not processes, arrivals, not journeys. So can you go over what the archetypes are and, you know, how you basically transcend them?
1: Yes. So, um, so essentially the, the archetypes, the idea for the archetypes came from, um, uh, from a visit to the uh, my favorite hamburger joint, is that self-explanatory? or Do I need to elaborate?
2: <laughs> I think you'll have to go into that one. All right.
1: Uh, so so uh, you know, it was um, it was before uh, a very important squash tournament, and I resolved for uh, a month or two before the tournament to only only eat very healthy foods. Now, in general, I I, I ate healthfully, but uh, you know, as an as an athlete. Um, but for that month or two it was especially healthy, you know, so only, uh, uh, you know, fruits, vegetables, you know, um, lean, uh, meat or, or, or fish. Um, and, um, and, and then, uh, and then I said to myself that once the tournament is over, I will reward myself with a full on, uh, junk food meal, which would mean going to my favorite hamburger joint, and uh, and ordering, which I did four hamburgers, um, and um, there was no doubt in my mind that I would devour uh, the four. You know, I had a, a very uh, big appetite. Played squash six hours a day. You need a lot of calories for that. Um, and I remember buying those hamburgers and then walking over. And I went by myself because I said, you know, this is something that I really want to focus on. Um, you know, no distractions. So I went by myself, sat down with the four hamburgers in front of me, and I was about to bite into the first one, and I stopped. And um, even though I'd been looking forward to that meal for, for, you know, for weeks, I stopped. And the reason why I stopped was because I felt so clean. Uh, you know, my body felt so strong, I was so energetic, and I said, you know, this hamburger may, may you know, may, may ruin that for me. And uh, it was at that point that I came up with the hamburger model, which I later uh, renamed the happiness model. And here is the hamburger model. So there are four different types of hamburgers. The first type is the hamburger that I just turned down. And that was a, a, a tasty hamburger, which I would certainly enjoy eating in the here and now, in the present. But in the future, I would have, you know, paid a price. I wouldn't have felt so great. You know, I would have been a bit weaker, you know, lethargic. Uh, as a result of this. So there was present benefit to that hamburger, but future detriment. Then there was another hamburger type, which um, was not tasty, but very healthy. For that hamburger type, it would be about uh, future benefits and that I would feel great after, because it was healthy, but present detriment. I wouldn't enjoy the meal. And then there was another hamburger type, which was the worst type, meaning the hamburger type which uh, was not tasty and not healthy. So a lose lose uh, hamburger. And the fourth hamburger type was the winner. There was a hamburger which was very tasty, just like the one I had turned down, and very healthy. In other words, there was present benefit and future benefit. And I realized that each one of these Archetypes describes a, um, a, an archetypal individual or a trait or a way of being in the world. So the ha- first hamburger type, which is future benefit, very, uh, sorry, f- uh, present benefit, very tasty, future detriment, is the uh, hedonistic archetype. This is one where you enjoy what you do, but, you know, forget the future. Then there is the, the hamburger, which is future benefit, but no present benefit. This is the rat race hamburger. This is uh, about always thinking, living for the future, failing to enjoy the journey. The worst archetype is the nihilistic archetype. Now, this is mostly associated with uh, depression or what psychologists call learned helplessness. Nothing I do matters, no pleasure, no future, no present. The ideal burger, the happiness burger, is one where I enjoy the present and the future. This archetype can be applied to anything we do in our life. For example, what's a happy relationship? A happy relationship is one in which we enjoy our time together, yes, of course, and we're also building a future together. Um, then there is, you know, hedon- there are hedonistic relationships where we just enjoy the present and, you know, whatever comes tomorrow, I don't know. And then there are the worst relationships, of course, where, uh, we're, um, not enjoying the present nor, nor thinking about a future. Uh, we are helpless in those relationships and the red race relationships, you know, we're there for, for a purpose, you know, why are we in this relationship so that we can have a better future or better for our kids all about the future. Nothing about the present. Work. Ideal work, once again, is work where I enjoy overall with ups and downs, just like in every even in the best relationships, but overall enjoy my work and uh, it's meaningful. It's purposeful. I have goals that are important to me. In other words, there is also future benefits. And that in a nutshell is what happiness is about. How can we increase the time that we spend in the happiness quadrant? You know, we, all of us, all of us uh, have uh, times when we're in the rat race thinking about the future. We have times when we're just feeling completely broken and down. Uh, We're in the nihilist. We have times when we're just thinking about, you know, watching our favorite sitcom or, or, you know, enjoying an ice cream, just being hedonistic. And that's fine too. But how can we increase the time that we spend enjoying present benefit and future benefits? and um this is not a tr- uh, an, an easy question to answer because our culture our cultures rather split the two you know in a sense um and again i'm, I'm using very broad brush strokes here but yeah. in a sense the west is associated with the future the east is associated with the present so people who are in the uh, west or um or uh, identify with the approach in the, in the West would say, what is happiness about? Happiness is about being in the future. It's about attaining your, you know, big goals. Yeah, get into Berkeley, get into Harvard, get into, you know, Tsinghua University um, and then get, you know, into, uh, you know, the best investment bank, you know, become or, or, or consulting or, or uh, you know, become the, the, the chief doctor. Doesn't matter, but become successful. And it's all about the future. And then you'll be happy. Of course, that future never arrives because you are, uh, um, you know, you're constantly deferring uh, happiness. And then, you know, you get to the age of 70, 80, and you, you realize that you have been living in the future. That is very much the West. In the East, and again, broad brush strokes, the focus has been much more on the present. You know, it's no coincidence that, you know, meditation, at least at the highest level, comes out of, uh, uh, of, uh, of India, that uh, Qigong, Kong, Tai Chi come out you know of China, that uh, um, yoga comes you know what are all these practices? They're about present moment awareness. And in many ways, and, and people say, no, this is what happiness is about, present moment awareness. So we have these two competing worldviews, and the thing is, these two worldviews can and should meet. Because we can have future goals, because we are also future oriented um, in, by our very nature. And we also need to learn how to enjoy the present moment, because that is where happiness does reside as well. And the question is how can we reconcile? How can we have this perfect burger, in a sense, or the ideal burger, rather, that is both about present benefit and future benefit? This is the question. When it comes to happiness, and the answer is, is at the intersection, the synthesis between East and West, and this is why it's so important for children to read the Gita's and the writings of the Buddha and uh, and and um, and the uh, uh, Tao Te Ching, as well as read um, uh, about uh, uh, Shakespeare and read uh, and read uh, the Iliad and Odyssey that that um very much emphasize goal and uh, and success and flourishing. Yeah. Wow.
2: Uh it's funny because you kind of summarized a good amount of the book <laughs> in just that monologue. But I, I had uh two questions or a couple of questions around the concepts of idealism and realism as well as goals. And you said when we set realism and idealism in opposition to one another, when we live as though having ideals and dreams were unrealistic and detached, we're allowing a false dichotomy to hold us back. And the reason that that intrigued me so much is that I often see people who set, you know, wildly ambitious goals, uh, like become, you know, the next Steve Jobs, which most of us probably never will. Uh, so, you know, how do you have that, you know, coexistence or balance between idealism and realism? And then the other thing, uh, you know, about goals that you said uh, was that, you know, I believe that goals are indispensable to a happy life. To be happy, we need to identify and pursue goals that are both pleasurable and meaningful. But before looking at the relationship uh, between setting goals and feeling good, let's consider the relationship between setting goals and doing well. And the reason that struck me uh, is because I just finished reading Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, for the second time. And he had some really interesting takes on goals that I think challenged a lot of what we think we know about goals. Uh even to the point of suggesting the idea of goal free living, and so how do you how do you resolve these bizarre paradoxes
1: yeah, so it's important to understand what is the goal of goals. The goal of goals is not to uh, attain them and then le- and then we 'll be happy happy you know or live happily ever after. The goal of goals is actually to facilitate the enjoyment of the present moment. So take an example. If I go on a, on a road trip and I have no idea where I'm going, in other words, I have no goal, I'm first of all likely to get uh, lost and I'm going to constantly be marred by indecision and constantly be marred by, uh, um, by inattentiveness to the moment. I mean, think about days when you woke up and, and you had no idea what you wanted to do. And, you know, once in a while, it's nice or for a, a short period of time, it's nice. But after a while, we begin, we, we feel lost and unhappy. So having a goal, a place where we want to get to is important. However, once we have that goal, we need to let go of it because its purpose when it comes to happiness is not the achievement of the goal, but rather its purpose is so that we can enjoy be liberated to enjoy the present moment. And I'll give you an example. So, right now, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book. Um, I have a goal. I want this book out on, uh, um, as I've committed, on April 27. In order for the book to be out, I need to be working on it every day. But now I have this goal, I can let go of it. And every morning when I wake up, I sit down for my two 90 minute sessions. And write, and I know that by doing that, I will I will uh, get to um, to my goal. But the goal is not front and center anymore. What's front and center is every day I get up and I work for those three hours on writing, and I'm liberated to enjoy the process. Now, if I woke every morning and I said, "Look, I have three hours now. What should I do today? Should I write today? Oh no, maybe I should actually just watch, uh, you know, um, the Big Bang Theory." For, for, three hours. That's not the, um, the, the path to happiness. The path to happiness is having a clear goal and then letting go of it and just doing what is necessary in the here and now to get there. Wow.
2: So, okay. There, there are a couple of things here. Um, I want to ask you two last questions. One was specifically about love. I, I just really loved everything you had to say, um, about relationships. And I think the thing that struck me most Uh, you know, you said that mistaking pleasure for love, the hedonist in a relationship mistakes lust for love, the hedonist pleasure inevitably fades because without a meaningful foundation to the relationship that goes beyond immediate gratification, it's impossible to sustain happiness. And then the other thing you said is the problem is that movies end where love begins. It's the living happily ever after that poses the greatest challenge. It's after the sun sets that the difficulties often rise. Which it's funny because it's taken me years to get my head around the fact that life is not a romantic comedy. One of my friends was like, I think you have this idealized Disney version of what your love life is going to be like. And I think when I finally came to terms with that, I stopped going into every date expecting to find the love of my life. And, you know, it just made things easier. But in a culture where that is so embedded into us through pop culture, the world around us, you know, people putting these like perfect pictures of their like beautiful, happy relationships on Instagram. How do you actually get past that narrative?
1: Yeah, you know, you, you, you asked earlier about uh, idealism and, and realism. To have ideals is important. At the same time, it's also important to, um, to be realistic about those ideals Realism and idealism need to coexist just as future and present need to coexist, specifically when it comes to relationship, if my expectation is that uh, i 'll find uh, the love of my life and will uh, um, and'll we'll, uh, you know get married or uh, commit to one another through our vows and then we 'll live happily ever after, and that means being in in, in lust and love every moment of our lives, just like it seems the um, uh, the movies uh, tell us, then, um, then I'm in for disappointment. These are great expectations. Uh, there are false expectations, and I will inevitably experience frustration and much unhappiness. If, on the other hand, I know that um, relationships are about work, they're about investment. It can be enjoyable work, pleasant work, um, relationships are also about uh, ups and downs in even the best of relationships. Then I have a more realistic uh, expectation, and then I'm more likely to find happiness. You see, here is the metaphor. Think about it. Um, let's say you've been looking for your ideal job, and you've been looking for years for this ideal job, and finally, finally you found it. And on Monday morning, you're ready to go into work, to your ideal job, your ideal office. The Everything is just perfect there. And you go into uh, your office and you sit down on your uh, new beautiful uh, chair and you put your legs up on the table and you say, I found it. I got it. I found my ideal job. I'm just so happy and I'm ready to have a good time here from now and forevermore for the rest of my life and that's it well you know what will happen is probably 5 minutes later or at most uh, a day later <laughs> your uh, colleagues or, or boss will come in and say you're fired you know you came here to work not to put you know your your feet on the on the table now of course we know that intuitively and we want to um, invest we come in and we work harder than we'd ever worked before because we did find our ideal job and yet in relationships the opposite happens we find our ideal partner you know we 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 and we think okay now that we have found our ideal partner we can just live happily ever after and do nothing this is why i say that movies end where love begins this is where the hard work begins this is where the investment uh, in the relationship needs to um needs to start or to increase it's when uh, it's after the um you know after the, uh, the, the the commitment after we have found then we need to do the work and that's how you cultivate healthy long-term relationships not perfect relationships just like there's no perfect parent um but relationships where you do grow closer and closer become more and more intimate uh, with each other But that takes work. That takes time. That doesn't just happen because you found the perfect partner, because the perfect partner doesn't exist. What you're doing is you found someone you're compatible with, and now the work begins. Wow.
2: So I I have two um, last questions for you. So uh, you talk in the Meditations on Happiness, and we don't have time to get into all of them, but one of them in particular struck me. Uh, and it was around the idea of self-interest and benevolence. And you say, we often enhance our happiness to the greatest extent when we pursue activities that provide us with meaning and pleasure and that help others. And earlier, we were talking about the fact that the West tends to be much more individualized. And this is a conversation I've been having with you know my roommates. And you know one of my roommates said, he's like, any good society is driven by some level of self-interest. But uh, do you feel that To some degree, we've pushed self-interest to the point of diminishing returns because look at sort of the inequality we've created. Look at the crisis we've created around the world. Part of that to me is self-interest pushed to the extreme.
1: I think what we um, need to recognize is that self-interest and the interest of others are two sides of the same coin. Once again, we see an unhealthy split, a schism that exists, again, just like the schism between f- present and future exists. And that schism that I'm talking about is between selfishness and selflessness. Um, you see, when people very, very often criticize the field of, uh, of happiness studies, they say, oh, but this is all about a selfish pursuit. And uh, my answer to that is yes, in part, it is. Now, they say, um, pointing to a problem, because you go to the thesaurus, the dictionary, and you look for synonyms for selfishness, what do you find? You find words such as uh, um, evil, immoral, uh, self-interested, inconsiderate. These are all um, synonyms to the word selfish, so it's a bad thing. On the other hand, you go selfless and uh, selfless is, you know, altruistic, uh, helpful, nice, kind, generous, benevolent. So that's a good thing. So there is a real schism that exists, and people are um, are upset because they have to choose. Because on the one hand, part of their nature is that they look out for their self interest. At the same time, they are constantly told that being uh, that doing things in your self interest is. Uh, It is a bad thing. The being selfish is immoral. So what do you do? What you do is you reconcile the two. Because we have a lot of research showing that when you help other people, when you contribute to their well-being, when you make them happy, when you give charity, when you're kind to other people, um, that contributes to your own happiness, arguably more than any other intervention. So to give is to receive. So that's one side of the equation. We also know at the same time that when you cultivate your own happiness, when you increase your well-being, you become more generous, more benevolent. So potentially, there exists a self-reinforcing loop between giving, up, giving to others and giving to yourself. That each time I help others, I'm also helping myself. And when I help myself, by extension, I'm more likely to help others. And this self-reinforcing loop is the loop that we need to teach and cultivate and encourage in our culture. And in order to do that, we need to put an end to the unhealthy schism. Because, you know, um, first there was the world. You know, words create worlds, concepts conceive. And it's important for us to have the right words, the right understanding. Of words, So rather than talking about selfishness versus selflessness, we need to talk about selffulness. And selffulness is where uh, concern for the self and concern for others are merged, are reconciled, are synthesized.
2: Amazing. Um, well, I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Authenticity. To thine own self be true.
2: Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, your book? I know that you guys have a course um, that you've
1: started as well. Uh, So let people know where they can find out about all of that. Yes. So um, we, um, we have the Happiness Studies Academy, where we launch courses uh, every uh, few months. And these are courses that focus on helping, uh, the answering two questions. The first question, how can I become happier? The question, how can I help others become happier? Uh, as applied to the workplace, to schools, to homes, to the individuals, uh, as well as to the collective. So, um, And you can find more information on that through the happinessstudies.academy website. Awesome.
2: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.